and welcome to another episode of Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and agriculture, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with our community radio station, WERU 89.9 FM Blue Hill. I'm your host, Caitlin Barker, and today we're talking about all things maple-related. I'm joined by Jason Lilly from the University of Maine. Thanks for joining me, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me, Caitlin. Yeah. And do you want to talk first a little bit about the work you do at the University of Maine? Sure. Yeah. So my uh, title with the University of Maine Cooperative Extension is Assistant Extension Professor of Sustainable Agriculture and uh, Maple Industry Educator. So um, as you probably heard, there's two very distinct aspects of my job. One is working with mostly diversified vegetable farmers and, and really the farming community as a whole. Um, on improving sustainability practices through financial management and a lot of, you know, production practice type things. So soil health and cover cropping and those types of uh, fun aspects of farming. And then the uh, second part of my job is to work with the maple industry and maple producers throughout the state and throughout the maple producing region. Um, and again, to just identify the needs of the producers and then develop educational programming, uh, do some research um, and to just, you know, support the industry in any way that that um, we see need for. Great. Yeah. Well, we decided to do this program um, a little early in the winter in January with the idea that um, long main winters sometimes need things to look forward to. And we know the maple season is is historically around the March time of year. Um, and so it'd be nice to do a little um, overview of mapling and get people excited about the upcoming maple season. And there's also been a really resurgence in homesteading skills in the last couple of years. People are really interested in trying things out on their own. Um, so I think this is a really great time to maybe pique some interest in maple production. So for starters, what makes pure maple syrup so iconic? Yeah, I think um, you you hit on some of that there that we have a very long winter here in Maine and um, maple syrup is the first crop of the season. And it's something that, you know, whether it's uh, people and families who are sugaring on their own, on their own property, or if it's people who engage with the the, the sugaring world through Maine Maple Sunday, um, whatever it may be, it's that opportunity early in the season. It's kind of the first signs of, of the upcoming resurgence of, of the food world. And uh, so people really, really come together around that. Um, there's also just the the long, long history um, and kind of cultural significance of, of sugaring in the region. So, you know, um, interaction and utilization of, of this amazing um, food crop, uh, it, it goes back to pre-colonial times and Native Americans had, you know, a lot of utilization of, you know, maple sugaring and that's still an important part of their culture. And, uh, you know, that just continues through to now. So um, it's really kind of ingrained uh, as, as a part of what we do um, here in the Northeast. Well, let's say someone hasn't ever tried making maple syrup on their own. What, what are some starting points? Where do people jump in? 
Yeah, so um, just some kind of high level and overview of the processes. You know, the first thing is you've got to know what trees um, are are maple trees. Um, I've been out with some good friends who who know the the woods well, and and still we've gone up and I've had to kind of tap them on the shoulder and say, I don't think you're going to get very good syrup out of that oak tree right there. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> really funny because we I have the same story in our family. <laughs> Fifteen years ago, we were renting a house and my husband and I went out to tap trees and the people who were close friends who we were renting from came over and said that one right there is not going to give you a right. lot <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. yep so um so yeah identification of the trees is really the, the key first step um and then just getting set up with some some good food safe usually maple specific equipment uh, as far as taps, uh, drills, um, you know, buckets or some sort of collection system, um, and then being prepared to, you know, spend a lot of time in front of a fire. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this is, uh, especially on a backyard scale, uh, not really the most efficient process. Uh, you can expect to spend five to six hours per weekend, you know, per sap run um, processing that, that sap. Um, and making it into syrup. Um, so, you know, it's a long boil process. And then we take that, that finished, you know, boiled down syrup and put it into containers, you know, maple specific containers work really well. Um, but, you know, mason jars and canning supplies work just as well. Yeah. Nice. And so back to the beginning, if I'm going out in the woods right now where there's no trees with leaves on them, how am I going to identify a maple tree versus other species? Yep. Um, so kind of three main things to look for. Um, the first and really the easiest way to go about this is to start thinking about it in the fall, fall time when the leaves are still on. Um, we don't have that luxury if anyone's looking to, to start sugaring this year, but um, you can kind of scrounge around on the ground down where I am in the southern coastal part of the state. There's no snow on the ground. So we can get a general sense of the trees in the area anyway by just looking on the ground. Um, maple leaves are fairly iconic. So you think of the Canadian flag. Um, that, that leaf on the Canadian flag has five fairly sharp points to the leaf or lobes. Um, and there's no serration. So there's no like at like the jagged edge of a knife. So it's fairly smooth around the outside of those five lobes. That's going to be a sugar maple leaf. Um, if you have three, three to maybe five lobes, but they have the serration around the edge, uh, that's going to be more of a red maple, which also is, is great for tapping. Uh, might give slightly less sugar, but really gives good quality um, tasting sap. Um, and then we can also use our Norway maples and uh, and even silver maples will give um, some level of sugar in, in the sap of those trees, just a lot lower than our sugar maples. Hmm. And so that, mm -hmm. well, I was just going to say, can you combine those syrups if you're boiling that off? Yep. And many producers do. Um, there's there's some slight differences in the season and, you know, the red maples will will finish or give a lower quality sap earlier than sugar maples, but still a lot of producers are, are mixing those together and just um, boiling them down together. And um, there's there have been flavor um, tests and comparisons between red maple and sugar maple syrups, and it's it's all the same. So 
Nice. Yeah. So yeah, leaves are the first uh, thing to look at for identifying your trees. And then the next one that is really helpful year round is to look at the twigs. Um, so if you can like clip off or pull down some branches, um, there's uh, what's called opposite budding and then alternate budding. So as you look down the end of the branches, you look down the twigs, you'll see a little kind of swollen area. And on some trees, you'll see a, a side or a secondary branch that goes off to the left. And then you go down a few inches, one that goes off to the right, go down a few more inches, one goes off to the left. So that's considered alternate branching. And that's uh, not a maple. <laughs> so what we're looking for with our maple trees is opposite budding. Um, so you go down the branch and you'll see a secondary side branch that goes out um, directly across the, the main branch from each other. So you have kind of like a four-way intersection there. Um, so if you see those, um, that's either um, in, in Maine, we pretty much just have maple species that have um, opposite budding and then alter our ash trees. So um, an ash tree has a really blunt end on it, like a, like a pencil pretty much. Um, so the, the branches will come right down to a really blunt end. And then uh, the maple twigs will come down to more of a, a pointy end. Um, yeah. Nice. Okay. That makes it a little easier to kind of figure out exactly what you're dealing with in times like these. <laughs> right. Yeah. No leaves to be found on trees. And, and I won't attempt to uh, describe bark over the radio, <laughs> but, uh, but there's a really great resource. It's called uh, Forest Trees of Maine. It's a publication of the uh, Maine Forest Service, and it's really a, a great book to have on the shelf and to take out into the woods with you. And it has descriptors of bark and seed pods and leaves and twigs. Um, so that that's really helpful. Great. We can put a link um, in the show notes, too, if people go to the website, weru.org. Um, and look up Common Ground Radio, and I'll put a link to any resources we talk about today um, so people can check that out online. Great. And I think you might even be able to download it um, to look yep. at it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Great. Okay. So you found the trees or tree, multiple trees usually that you want to tap. Um, what's the next step? Yeah. So the next step is to collect the equipment that you're going to need uh, to get rolling in the season. So um, you want to have everything ready, usually by the second week of February. Um, some of the specific pieces of equipment you're looking for are, are clean, uh, really sharp drill bits. There are maple-specific drill bits that just do a slightly better job to pull the wood shavings out of the tree. Um, you're going to look for a 5 16th inch, inch drill bit. Um, you'll see taps and spiles that are older um, that might be 7 16th inch, but from a sustainability and tree health perspective, um, and then like yields and quality, the recommendation is to go with five sixteenths. Um, you might see a lot of three sixteenths uh, inch equipment out there. And especially for beginners, um, I, I would recommend to just stay with the five sixteenths stuff. On the, on the note of tree health, when mm -hmm. you're determining which trees to tap, can you talk about size and how you determine what an appropriate tree to tap is and how many taps per tree? Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Going back to the tree identification. Um, 
not only do you want to identify that it is actually a maple tree, but we want to make sure that it's at least 10 inches in diameter. So the, the diameter at breast height um, should be 10 inches across. If it's any smaller than that, um, we're kind of extracting too much of, of the sugar resource, the carbohydrates that are needed to get the, the tree uh, reinvigorated for the next year. So we're gonna stress that tree out a little bit uh, too much. So we're waiting for a, a 10 inch in diameter tree and um, anything in that size range should only have one bucket on it. Um, if you're up over 18 inches in diameter, then you can put two buckets on that tree. And um, you know the easier rule of thumb is, I'm fairly tall, I have a pretty big wingspan, but for most people, if you can touch your fingers when you, when you wrap your um, arms around the tree, then it should only have one bucket on it. If you can't touch fingers, you can put two on it. And really we shouldn't see much more than two on, on trees. You might see it have an old tree line uh, or, or on the rock wall and you have those massive 150 year old trees. And if the canopy of those trees looks nice and healthy, there isn't a bunch of dying dead branches, the tree isn't really stressed out. You can consider three on those, but really we, we usually recommend just sticking with two trees per bucket max. In terms of materials, um, I know years ago, we found some old metal buckets, probably at, I think they were a, an old maple supplier who had them in a shed who passed them on to us. But I know now we shouldn't use those. Can you talk about why and, and what we should be using instead? Yep. So um, there has been a lot of research and 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 kind of forward movement uh, to make sure that there isn't lead in the maple industry. And the industry has come a very long way. So all of our equipment manufacturers um, and producers have, have really kind of met the mark from my perspective, where we've removed all of the lead solder out of, you know, all the plumbing and tubing and, and metal buckets and all that. Um, so that was the biggest concern with these old galvanized metal buckets um, was that as, as we're hanging those on the tree and we have um, we have the sap that sits in those buckets for, you know, up 24 hours or however long, the sap is usually an acidic uh, material and that um, slight acidity is going to pull lead out of the solder and out of the galvanized metal itself. Um, and then, and then we're going to take that sap that now has lead in it and we're going to concentrate it down 40 times. Um, so, <laughs> so that's not, why we really great. recommend, <laughs> right. Not great. Yeah. So we want to, we recommend, you know, going with, uh, newer products, aluminum or is what the material that most of our, uh, new buckets are made out of, but we also have newer technology um, of or a newer product, and they're called sap bags. So it's a plastic bag with a metal hanger frame. Those work really well. Uh, and those bags are pretty heavy duty, so they can be reused if they're washed out really well. Um, and then there's also you know tubing systems if you want to get more advanced, and that's all you know food safe plastics. Um, and usually those are running down into a collection system that again is, is a food safe plastic. So we don't want to use a tubing system and dump it into a kitty litter bucket. 
or you know even you know the box store buckets that's all recycled plastic we don't know what that plastic originally was so really want to make sure that it's a food grade container that mm -hmm. that sap's running down into mm -hmm. and um i think with a quick google search we could probably find food safe containers and i've also heard like i think you mentioned um tractor supply somebody had seen some food safe containers and yep. so definitely um able to be found in this area if you start looking yeah um once you gathered all your materials how do you determine timing like how do you know when to tap yeah so um your weather app or the the weather person on the on the news is really your best friend here um we recommend waiting until at least the middle of february so uh, if not the end of february um and that varies throughout the state so a lot of our producers in york county and cumberland county they're um they're ready to tap you know that first second week of february Whereas, um, uh, or, you know, sometimes the third week, depending on the weather. Um, but then we have other producers up in, you know, up in the Jackman area and up in northern Aroostook County, and they aren't getting their first runs until Maine Maple Sunday, like the first, the third week of March. So it's, uh, it's variable. And, um, but what we're looking for are temperatures that are going to get up into the high 30s and really ideally into the low 40s um, and then that are also going to freeze at night it's the freeze thaw action that is creating kind of pressure differentials within the tree that pull that that sap up um, and and get that movement so that we can collect that sap and where we're seeing some of those temperature differentials now, but it's not sustained, we shouldn't tap early what right. Like there's yep. no reason not to. Yeah. Yeah. So especially on bucket systems, um, the taps that we use for buckets <clears throat> are um, really highly exposed to the outside environment. And even with tubing systems, if we just have a natural like gravity flow tubing system, Every time that it that it freezes back up, the tree actually pulls sap from the tubing or pulls air from the outside ambient you know environment back into that tap hole. And when that happens, we have microbial life that's floating around in the air or that's inside our tubing systems that gets pulled into these little tiny vessels within the tree and start to grow and can block off uh, those vessels so that they don't yield as much sap. So if we go out and tap right now, we're collecting this upcoming weather, um, you know, the, the sap that we get over the next few weeks is probably gonna be pretty low in sugar content and, and there won't be really that much of it. And then we have the contamination that will happen in the, in the tap hole and then when we get a really good high sugar content um, sap runs in, in March, uh, we're going to have contamination and blockage of that, um, the tap holes. So the tree really knows when it's time to do that push with the higher sugar levels. So even if there is any sap running right now, it's not going to have that level of sugar. Yeah, it's variable year to year and tree to tree. But but generally speaking, um, it kind of it takes some cold and uh you know sustained cold 
uh, for the starches in the tree to change to carbohydrates to make those higher levels of sugars. Well, um, once you've got the materials and you figured out what you're going to tap, you've got, you've seen that weather pattern approaching. So you've gone out and tapped your trees. What next? Like how often should you be collect, collecting sap and how should you be storing it if you're yep. not going to boil right away? Right. So, well, the tapping process itself is an important one to talk about. So, so we see that whether, you know, we're going to have those 40 degree days and the freezing nights, and, you know, it's the end of February. So we want to have either our buckets or our tubing system, um, our drill with that sharp five sixteenths inch drill bit. And I recommend getting like a rubber mallet. So something that's a little softer. Um, and then we can head to the woods. So usually about, you know, chest height or so, you want to drill a hole and keep keep your drill bit and your drill level. So we don't need to have a, a hole that's pointed like upward into the tree. And we definitely don't want to drill a hole down into the tree because then that sap will pool in there. So we want to keep that and go right straight into the tree and go in about two inches is kind of a sustainable depth to go. And then once the hole is drilled, we, we want to do a good job to just go straight in, straight back out. You know, if you put a little down pressure, you'll get an oblong hole and get sap leakage. Um, so once that hole is drilled, set your spile or your tap into the hole. And I like to do just three taps with the rubber mallet. So it's usually a tink, tink, tunk. And um, one issue that we see fairly regularly is people really drive those spiles into the tree. And then we get calls and say, well, our sap is leaking all over the, like down the tree. So we went out there and we tapped the, the spile in even harder. And what they're actually doing is splitting the wood and the bark on the tree so that it, we don't have a good fit. So you just need, you know, make sure it's set in there, but you don't need to drive it in. Um, so that's kind of, those are the, the basics to, to tapping themselves. Yep. If you're just tuning in, I'm Caitlin Barker, and this is Common Ground Radio brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association on WERU 89.9 FM. Today, I'm talking with Jason Lilly from the University of Maine, all about maple production. So, um, once you've got your trees tapped, um, you need to collect your sap, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Assuming there's a nice flow on. <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a, a good idea to have a few taps that are fairly close to, um, to the house so you can check them. And cause sometimes, you know, we might get a 38 degree day, but it was windy and, and, um, or the roots are still really frozen. There's a lot of frost in the ground still, and you might not get hardly any, uh, sap yield even though it's warmer so you want to have a good sense of when it's actually running and when it is running you need to check it daily um, sap is a uh, one and a half to two and a half percent sugar roughly um, and so that makes it a pretty ideal growth medium for you know yeast and back you know uh, so you can get some good fermentation that happens in the sap if you let it sit for too long so um, it's a good idea to be out there and collect the sap you know whenever it's going to run and then you know like for most people who are going to boil sap in the backyard 
um, they're going to collect it until the weekend when they have a nice long period of time that they can, you know, get people together and, and have a boil. So um, if you're going to be storing sap, um, the best way to do it is to, um, you know, put it in a barrel on the north side of a building. So it's fully shaded and hopefully we have snow and you can pile snow right up against that barrel and keep it just as cold as you can. Um, and, you know, really try to prevent any of that microbial growth rotation from happening as much as possible. Um, so that's, that's really the, the key thing we say, kind of like treat sap just like you would milk to keep it from, from going bad because um, boiled, you know, processed sour uh, sap makes a pretty sour, unpleasant syrup. So yeah, that doesn't sound good. Yep. Uh, so what are some options for a boiling setup for a home maple make producer? Yeah. So the first time I boiled on my own, uh, I had a, you know, an eight gallon lobster pot and I burnt through a lot of propane to make, you know, three quarts of, of syrup. And, um, you know, if you, if you kind of think about it, what we're trying to do is go from say 40 gallons of, of, of liquid to one gallon of finished syrup. So that's kind of our average ratio, 40 to one, which means we have to boil off 39 gallons of water. Um, so the most efficient way to get that water to leave the system is to have a lot of surface area. So on a home scale, um, really the, the best way to go about it is to get some catering pans um, so kind of like you'd put over a double boiler if you're going through a buffet line kind of thing. And I recommend to get three of those and keep the, the, the level of the sap that's in each of those pans at maybe two inches. If you get too low, you can burn the pans and that's a mess and nobody wants that. Um, and if you get too high, you lose your efficiency. Um, so if you have three pans, you can you know, start it all at the same time, fill all three pans to two inches. But as that starts to boil down, take the more concentrated stuff and continue to move it towards the pan over the higher heat. And um, that will just make it so that you're not diluting one product. You're always concentrating as you move down the line. So you're um, literally, literally like ladling syrup from one hotel pan into the next as it gets lower and then yep. filling up that first one again with fresh sap. Yep. Okay. Yep. And uh, another thing to just make sure that you're maintaining that boil as much as possible is we can have a, what we call a, a preheater. So it might just be a very well washed out coffee can or, or some sort of a pot or a pan and leave that next to the fire or over the heat source so that the cold sap gets warmed up to almost a boil before it hits your catering pans. Um, so you're not killing that boil as soon as the, the cold sap hits it. Mm -hmm. So it's all about just efficiency, um, making sure you um, have a continuous heat source and try to maintain that high, really rapid boil as much as possible. Um, yeah, and then <clears throat> let's see. The next thing about boiling is that 
um, pretty much it, it's it's mostly guaranteed that as soon as you turn around, something bad is going to happen. So um, a boil over is really common, especially as you start to get towards the, the end of the boil when it starts to get more concentrated. Um, so there are various forms of defoamer that are used. So you don't have to you know, remove the pan from the fire. Um, you can have products, most you know, organic commercial producers are using a vegetable oil or like a saffron oil. Um, it Dairy products are not recommended because of um, allergy concerns. But um, if you are just making it for your own family, um, using butter is a really great option. It really adds a lot to the flavor. And, and you're not using a lot of any of these. It's like a drop when you start to see the, the foam rising um, or maybe a little scoop of butter, you know, again, when you see the foam rising. And with the these organic types of, um, of defoamers, it takes a few seconds. So don't don't freak out and put a whole stick in there, yeah. but, um, which but would, just keep might it not be that bad a thing. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> if you like butter and maple syrup, yep. but yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, I had heard in the past of, um, like pork fat being used and that being problematic for people who might be vegetarian, um, and yeah. not realize that. So, so yeah, the vegetable oil, I guess makes sense. Yeah. Especially if the pork fat's been hanging there for like a month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So how about the actual like boiling setup? I've seen some made with cinder blocks, um, and some like oil cans. What, what's maybe the most economical, um, option for a home maple producer? Yeah. So maybe I'll try to go through the, the, the spectrum. Um, so the most basic setup is to just, you know, take a, a fire pit and put some grates over it, something that you can place the the pot or the pans over um, and just have an open fire. And there are some issues with that. It will boil down. It will make a good, uh, you know, a good syrup. Um, you're probably going to have to strain the syrup a little bit more than you would normally um, because of the ash that's going to get into it. Um, you're likely going to have a very smoky flavored syrup. Um, sap and syrup really absorb all different kinds of, of flavors. And, and um, so, so it's something that from our perspective, working with commercial growers, we really want to try to limit any um, interaction of the sap and the syrup with any kind of outside, what we call, you know, just a contaminant. So um and then the other issue with the open fire system is that you're losing a lot of efficiency. Um, you have heat that's just leaving the system. So you're going to go through a lot more firewood um, and that that sap is, you know, likely getting less of the of the heat. So it's going to boil a little bit less efficiently than if that was closed in a little bit more. So to improve that system. There are some nice cinder block setups. Um, there's some some images that you can find. You know, kind of Google a um, cinder block evaporator, and I think I bought 40, 40 blocks when I built mine. Um, and you can just put like sand or or blocks in in the middle, 
and then you build up, I think it's three center blocks high and make sure that as you're doing this, you're, you're leveling everything up pretty good because you want your pans to be nice and level. You don't want all that sap to run to one side. So it's thinner on one side, more likely to burn up there. Um, but you're working on enclosing three sides of your, your firebox. So all that heat that's coming off your firewood is going to go right up um, under the pans. Um, you can even use the the eight by eight, the square blocks and stack those up in the back so you can make a little chimney to get some of the smoke and ash away from the pans. Um, and you can also get some good draft. So you're going to have a higher uh, amount of heat because there's oxygen being pulled over that fire due to the draw of the chimney. Yes. Um, so all that is really beneficial. And, and again, you then you're going back to what we just uh, described of the three catering pants uh, setup, where you're moving them from kind of the front where you're, you're feeding the, the wood into the fire, that's your less concentrated, and where you're going to have more heat back towards the chimney, that's where your more concentrated syrup will be. So there are other systems that you can buy. There are some, some welders in the state who are you know, tied into the maple industry and they take uh, 55 gallon drums and kind of cut the top off of those. And the drum is just a firebox, but the way that they're cut out, you can easily set in um, either catering pans or they might have their own specialized pan that fits over the top of that. And then you can start to like increase in money and mm -hmm. and quality and efficiency of the evaporators as you go up from that point mm -hmm. so i have a friend with a designated you know cast iron um firebox with a you know specialized two foot by three foot um you know uh evaporator pan that sits on top of that with the chimney and all that and then again you can go up in price from there yeah it's like fun hobbies that tend to evolve that way Yep, absolutely. <laughs> they they can take as much money as you want to put into them. <laughs> right. Um, so as the maple syrup continues boiling and you're getting closer to um, a finished product, what do you need to be thinking about? Like, what do you need to do with that product? Yeah, so the the there are very specific um, standards for what finished maple syrup is the USDA and every state and province where, where maple syrup is produced has a definition. And that is mostly um, one of the major components of that is the density. So how, what is the sugar content of the syrup? And um, that has been defined as being between 66 and 68.9 uh, degrees bricks or percent sugar. Um, so there's some specialized equipment, you know, you can get set up with equipment to do that, uh, to take that measurement for about $50. Um, but on a home scale, uh, a candy thermometer works just as well. And what you're looking for and keeping a close eye on as you start to get towards the end of the boil is that the uh, the temperature of the the syrup as it boils is seven and a half degrees over the temperature of water boiling that day. So typically water will boil at 212 degrees. So 
if that is the case for the day that you're boiling with barometric pressure changes and all that, then your syrup would be finished when the boil hits 219 degrees. Um, so that can happen quickly. Like you can boil at 212 degrees for five and a half hours. And then in the course of, you know, 15 minutes or so, you can, you can jump up pretty quick. So what a lot of folks will do is they start to see that come up. They hit that 217 or two, you know, 215, and then take it off and put it um, in a smaller pan because you're going to have a lot smaller volume at that point. And you can take it into the kitchen and finish it off in a more controlled environment instead of like dealing with that giant flame under a big unwieldy pan. Yeah. And you're only boiling for a small amount of time after. So it's not like you're going to fill your house with 39 gallons of steam at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. My uh, the first commercial operation that I sugared at um, the the owner, his first season of sugaring was in his mother's kitchen. And after all of her wallpaper peeled off of the walls and he almost <laughs> got kicked out of the house, he decided he was going to build his own designated <laughs> sugar house. <laughs> Smart. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, how do we um, store finished maple syrup? And I think we need to strain it too, right? Yeah. So there are a few ways to strain it when you hit your, your appropriate uh, density. Uh, one is to uh, just use a cheesecloth and fold that over, get several layers and put it down into, you know, like the, the red kind of splash guard that you use for filling tomato jars. Uh, and and run the syrup through there. Um, the then there are, um, let's see. Um, so we've got designated maple uh, wool. We call them cone filters, and you can get these at any maple supply store or online. Uh, and a lot of our local hardware stores will have these too. And um, you have to hang these over. Uh, heat resistant bucket or pail and um what they do is just strain out any of the impurities so in the the process of boiling you're going to have what we call sugar sands and they're essentially just calcium or minerals that that settle out through the evaporation process um, and if you pour those into your your container before straining them out it will look like this kind of gray, gunky, and it can be kind of gritty, this, this layer that forms on the bottom of your jars. So it's not dangerous. It's not bad for you. It just doesn't look great. And it doesn't have a, you know, the mouthfeel is kind of weird. So that's why we use these, these cone filters to get that out. And um, if you're starting to scale up and you're going to do a little bit more production and want to stick with the cone filters, um, it's important to filter when it's hot and also it's worth investing in in pre-filters and and these just slide down into the cone filter and um as it starts to get gunked up you can just pull that inner filter out and continue to go as opposed to having to start over from scratch um, after it gets too too dirty if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association on WERU 89.9 FM. 
I'm your host, Caitlin Barker, and today we're talking all things maple with Jason Lilly from the University of Maine. So uh, you've we've gone through the process of um, collecting the sap after tapping the trees and boiling it down and straining it, and now I just want to bottle it up and have it for a long time. Do I need, what do I need to do to bottle it up? Do I need to can it like a traditional product? Right. So I get that question a lot, and people are usually very relieved to hear that we don't need to go through a 45 minute hot water bath. Um, so um, if you think of what this product is, it is, you know, sap that's been boiled for a long time. So it's, it's um, you know, good and sterile when it comes off of the evaporator. When we filter it, we put it through the filter and it should be up over 185 degrees or so when it goes through the filter. And then um, you probably, it, it will probably cool down through the filtration process. Um, so you wanna get that thermometer in there and maybe bring it back up to 185, uh, but don't, don't go over that because you'll get more uh, sugar sand that will settle out. So bring it back up to 185, pour it into your your clean, you know, hopefully new container and put the lid on it. Um, that is, um, you know, sometimes people will turn it upside down, turn it upside side down briefly. But for the most part, you know, once that cools down, it will um, get a good um, seal on the lid and it should be shelf stable once once it cools from that point. That is definitely good news for someone who right. is used to a whole uh, water bath procedure when they're canning something. That's a lot easier. Yeah, especially after you've sat around a fire for five or six hours, you don't want to do it for another 45 minutes. So. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, so once you've done your last boil of the season, um, what are some steps people need to take um, regarding like the maple equipment, the taps and the trees, what do we need to be doing? Yeah. So, um, so the number one thing that, uh, is really important, you know, we're, we're utilizing a, a resource, uh, in the woods. Uh, we want to make sure that we take care of our trees as best as possible. And, um, you know, the, the, um, Something that does get neglected is that sometimes taps will get left in the tree until until the next season, but that's kind of like leaving a bandaid over a wound for too long. You know, you don't you don't uh, give it the opportunity to just get airflow and to heal over properly. Um, so it's really important as soon as that season's done, go out and pop all those taps out of the tree. You don't need to put anything over or in the holes, just let uh, the exposure to the air um, allow that tree to callus over and heal up nice and uh, quickly. So that that's a big one. Um, also, you know, a lot of people will take, you know, they're just tired of sugaring. They just want to move on. The garden's getting going at that point. Um, so they just throw things in the corner of the shed and say, oh, I'll come back to it next year. Um, but, you know, it's really best for for like a pest, you know, pest prevention um, and also just general sanitization to clean all those those buckets and or tubing and spiles and clean all that stuff as well as you can right off the bat. 
Um, if we allow those sugars to hang out and allow a lot of extra microbial growth to happen and to to exist on those those tools over the year, we're gonna um, it's gonna be more likely that we have contamination issues in in the next season when we go to use those again. And it's gonna make it a lot harder to clean if it's just dried on and completely caked on for the next year. So um, take that time right off the bat and and clean things up. And then if you're looking to expand or you really liked it and you want to continue for kind of future seasons, I always say, you know, make a lot of notes too. Um, it's, it's, there's really a lot to be learned year over year. And, um, you know, one tradition that sugar makers generally had um, is at the end of every boil, they'd write on the wall of the sugar house. So I was just hearing about um, a shingle from from inside a wall from like 1903. And some of the data from that was useful to um, look at climate change impacts and the change of the season from from the like five years of information that was on that that board um, to where what we're seeing now. What type of information would you recommend people be documenting? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the amount of sap that you get on each run, definitely your first run and your last run. Um, but then, you know, when you have a run, when you have a boil, how much sap and how much syrup you get from each boil. And if you really want to, again, get more into all this, there are hydrometers, which is a specialized tool. There are some that are specific to sap. So you can, you can, um, get a sense of what your sugar concentration was from each sap run, because that will change throughout the season. Mm. Um, we didn't talk about grading, but um, especially if you're going to sell commercially, you have to put a color grade on your syrup and um, which just, you know, tells you if it's a golden, really light colored syrup up to a very dark, uh, strong flavored syrup. Um, so, writing down what grade of syrup you had on each boil uh, would be an interesting piece of data that you could draw back or look back on in future years too. And a question kind of along those same lines, how have you seen the maple syrup industry change over the last couple of decades or, or longer? Like how is it changing? Yeah. So, um, well, climate change is, is real. <laughs> um, so and and in this industry that is completely dependent upon weather patterns, uh, there's some pretty e evident data to show that the, um, this change. Um, there was some work done at the University of Vermont, who has a very active um, maple research center, the Proctor Maple Research Center, and looking at data and um, season duration from the mid 60s up until about 2014 or so is when um, the the data that they assessed and they saw especially in in states that are further south like Massachusetts they have lost about eight days in the duration of their season um, luckily the further north that you get so as you get into central Maine um, we've only lost about four days uh, but we've also you know, lost, uh, 
you know, there's also more variability during that season. So there's, if it gets really warm, the trees might shut down for a couple of days. So, so we're seeing uh, definite changes that are, you know, concerning for the overall health of the trees when we have droughts and, uh, and, and flooding uh, from our really intense rainstorms. Um, so that's all kind of climactic stuff that, that producers are dealing with um, that is kind of worrisome. But at the same time, we have a lot of technology that's come into the, the you know, commercial production. So due to this technology, we've um, got systems that are still extracting a sustainable amount of, of sap out of the trees, but we do have increased sap yields um, because we're using things like, like vacuum and just tubing systems in, in themselves protect those holes better. There's better sanitation for our tubing uh, systems. And then there's also just more efficient uh, systems and tools for boiling the, the syrup down. So there's reverse osmosis that takes um, the initial, you know, large quantity of water out of the sap. So that significantly decreases the boil time so that producers um, are using a lot less fuel, whether it's firewood or oil or pellets or whatever it may be, um, to, to get the, the same end product. Um, so those efficiencies have been really exciting to see. And, um, and uh, it's nice to see that uh, sugar makers aren't, you know, in the sugar house until two and three in the morning so much uh, these days anymore uh, mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Do um, besides climate change, which is clearly having an impact, are there other pests, pests that uh, producers need to worry about? Yeah, there's, um, you know, the, there's this new, the, the jumping worm is something that is being found in Maine now uh, in Wisconsin and some of the, the sugar bushes that are closer to uh, urban areas. Um, th this little worm has had really big impacts on the forest floor and the, cause they, they consume so much organic material so quickly. So now that we have uh, a system where there's no mulch and, or coverage or protection for the roots. Uh, there's a lot more erosion. The, the frost and the cold goes down into the soil a lot faster and a lot more intensely. Um, so it's having really negative impacts on the, the maple trees in those areas. So we're trying to keep a close eye on that and, and do anything we can to prevent those from getting out into uh, our wooded areas and our, our sugar bushes. And then there's a, a, a host of forest insect pests that we have been dealing with for a long time, and they come and go. So we have our spongy moth that was formerly known as gypsy moth, and our um, a win winter moth is a newer one. And, you know, usually those come for a season, maybe defoliate the trees in a certain portion of the state and then move on. And it's not that big of a concern, but now that we have more drought and more uh, flooding and more stress to the trees overall, those one or two defoliations in a row can have lasting Im negative impacts. So we're just trying to keep a, a closer eye on that. And I'm working on um, 
enhancing our collaborations with the Maine Forest Service and trying to identify what we can do to to support sugar makers and protecting their um, their their woods as best as possible. That's good to hear. Um, so on a lighter note, <laughs> what are some of your favorite um, uses for maple syrup? Yeah, there's a there's a lot. <laughs> um, yeah so i mean there's definitely the traditional um you know pancakes and and waffles and um but you know brussels sprouts you just put a little uh, maple syrup on there with some bacon that's one of my favorite you know my favorite dishes uh, we go through a lot of salad dressing in my house so maple soy and uh the whole seed or like a dijon mustard mixed together that's really really nice mix for a meat marinade or as a salad dressing and then um i'm uh, kind of a, a sucker for a little bourbon with some some maple and then maybe a little cherry in there as well that's, that. that's hilarious because that's right up my alley i'm my family will tell you i'm the first one to eat all the brassicas in our house i'm a big yep. fan so i love <laughs> brussels sprouts um i do a dressing like that too i do like a maple balsamic dressing with a little mustard um and i'm a big bourbon drinker nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds delicious <laughs> yeah. yeah all those i i tend to feel like um i have to be like it's really precious once you know that time and effort that goes into maple making maple syrup right it's hard for me to feel okay with using it in a recipe that calls for half a cup or something like that yeah um, but it's also so delicious so so uh yeah we treat it carefully around here but we also really really love it <laughs> Yep. Yep. It's a valuable, uh, valuable product that, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of love goes into the, the creation of it, but it really, uh, adds a lot to any dish that it's used in and, it, and it's worth, it's worth splurging a little. So a Absolutely. And supporting, you know, local maple producers, if you're not making it on your own. And it also is really for us, a social, a social event. It's like welcoming right. spring, um, we have friends who usually do a boiling day, at least one like community boiling day where we go and it's a day of kids running around outside and sat boiling all day and standing around the fire to get warm and then, you know, working on projects and stuff. So it really, it's, it's more than, um, it's more than just making maple syrup. Right. Right. Absolutely. There's a lot of, a lot of culture and, and community around it. So it, it, as you said, it's definitely more than just a food product. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't ever gone to a tap on a tree and tasted it coming right out or your kids haven't, that's something to put on your list. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> classic main childhood is right. going out to the trees and trying the sap, which is tastes kind of like water when you're a kid, but right. <laughs> still, <Yeah>. still fun. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, like I mentioned, I'll put all the resources in the show notes. So if people have any questions, um, are there any other resources you want to point our, our listeners to? Yeah, so I maintain the University of Maine Cooperative Extension Maple Syrup resource page. And there's a whole tab on there for backyard sugar making. Uh, we have a few videos, we have a few fact sheets, and I am um, hoping that in the next few weeks, I will have a fact sheet on all the supplies that you'll need uh, for a small operation um, that will hopefully make that, that initial process and initial shopping trip a little easier. 
Mm-hmm. Great. And I know um, Mafka has um, some resources if you go on our website. Uh, and I actually looked up a YouTube video through Mafka's site um, to learn more about it, a webinar you did. So lots of resources out there for people looking to get into it. And I'd say um, if you know someone who's done it before or is doing it now, that's a great resource, going and having those conversations with people who have experience and can give you some tips. Certainly yeah. a good thing. That's definitely one thing about the the sugaring industry is people are really excited about it and really excited to share about it. So definitely go knock on your your neighbor sugar maker's door, go visit them uh, the week after, maybe the week after Maine Maple Sunday and um, and uh, pick their brain about um, about all that. And also that's why I'm here. So if anyone uh, has questions feel free to give me a shout. I'm in the Cumberland County Cooperative Extension Office um, and always happy to talk to folks about their sugaring enterprises. Great. Thank you so much. I'll put your contact info in those show notes too. So. Great. Common Ground Radio is a production of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU. I'd like to thank my co-host Holly Cedarholm, who isn't here today, and also our co-worker Claire Boland, who produces the show. Common Ground Radio can be heard here on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. Archives of previous episodes can be found on weru.org, as well as on the WERU app. Thanks for tuning in today. Now stay tuned for more great programming right here on WERU 89.9 FM. Mm -hmm.